for those of you that don't know me, my name is Matt, and it's lovely to be with you tonight. Um, so just to set this scene, we're going to do things a little bit differently tonight. Um, it's not that radical or different, but for me it is. Uh, so we're finishing up our series on uh, miracles that take place in the book of John. Uh, for those, I don't know if we've actually mentioned it. For those of you that have been paying attention, there are seven of them. And the series is seven weeks long, so it's very nice. It sort of writes itself. And tonight is the seventh one. Uh, it's the seventh miracle that, or the seventh sign. And so knowing John, knowing anything about symbolism, it's going to be a good one, right? So it's the final one in this little series of seven. And what I wanted to do, instead of um, my traditional method for doing a preach, uh, where I might look at the passage and pick out like three main points and really go for it and try and nail that in 15 minutes, I wanted to do it a little bit differently. It's going to feel a little bit more like a Bible study tonight. So if you have got access to a copy of this, either a paper Bible or on your phone, please feel free to grab that. Um, in fact, I don't know, Dave, can I be really, oh, have all the Bibles been taken out of the um, middle room? Or have you got any left? I don't know. Do you want to take a look? Just in case, we might see if we can get access to some. It might be useful because I'm actually going to do a kind of verse by verse. We'll kind of go through it. I'm going to pick out some stuff as we go. And then I've just got two, two things I want to kind of pull out of it in particular at the end. Before I go into it, a quick question, and I'll do this by show of hands. So I want you to vote either a one to a five on your, um, we'll call it your crying tolerance. If you are a one, you cry quite easily, okay? So this is either in laughter, so if someone really gets you going laughing, you might shed a tear. Uh, Equally, if you're feeling just particularly down or sad, you might cry quite easily. You've cried at the John Lewis advert, you know, that sort of standard, thanks. Um, So that's a one. Five is, I can't remember the last time I cried, what, what are tears? What are emotions? Okay, so that's a, that's a five. So I want you to think about that just for a moment. Then you're going to place yourself on that scale. One to five, go. We've got, oh my gosh, oh, okay, we've got, some, we've got the emotional corner over here, liking that. This is dangerous. And then a little bit more tolerance as we move out here. Okay, like that. Nathan's at a three or a five at about three. Okay, so a little bit of level. Love that. Ben's a five, loving this. Okay, sorry, again, calling out. I shouldn't be doing that. Um, So a little bit of getting to know each other. So I for sure am a one, and I'm trying to remember if I've always been a one or if that's like a thing that has kind of changed as I've grown up. I don't think I was like hyper-emotional as a kid or anything like that, but for some reason as an adult, I cry when I laugh. I cry if I find things sad. I cry when other people cry. It's just a thing that I go through. Uh, It sounds like some people definitely in this corner of the room understand that. There's a very famous moment in this story to do with crying where we wonder really what Jesus' uh, crying tolerance was because he arrives at the scene of Lazarus uh, having died and he famously bursts into tears. Um, as I've waffled about that, Dave has found some paper Bibles. So if you would like a copy of a paper Bible, Dave's got one. Feel free to grab it. And we're going to be reading from John chapter 11 where we're going to read the shortest verse in the Bible. wasn't expecting whooping or, or the verse being shared, but I'm loving this. No, that's fine. I'm enjoying it. That's great. That's great. Yep. <laughs> there we go. You guys are clearly on it. So I'll give you a moment to find it. John chapter 11, and we're going to read. Um, I'm going to read through it. I'm going to pick out a few things as we go through. And I've got two main points that I'm just going to use um, to apply this passage to us tonight. So I'm just going to begin. Uh, I'm going to start reading, and then I'll pause every now and again. And uh, we'll make our way through. 
So this is John chapter 11. I'm just going to start by reading this first little bit. I'm going to pause at verse 8. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister, Martha. Yes, this is the Mary and Martha that you know about, potentially, if you've read these. There we go. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus, uh, now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. She's a character that comes up quite a bit in the Gospels. Okay, when he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. This illness uh, will not end in death. Uh, How have I managed to lose my place already? No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And I don't know about you, that sounds really kind of contradictory to me, like he loved him. But because of that love, decided to stay where he was two more days. So we need to know already that that's an unusual kind of response to sad news about your friend. So he decided to stay two more days. And then he said to his disciples, after that time had passed, let us go back to to Judea. They were further away. They were a few days away, probably, between two to three days of traveling from that place. And he said, let's go to that area. And then verse 8, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago... The Jews there try to stone you, and yet you are going back. Okay, so let's quickly pause there. It's really important to notice that this story is the turning point in the whole Gospel of Luke, okay? In the Gospel of Luke, in the whole Gospel of John, up to this point, Jesus has been traveling around. There have been lots of signs, lots of teaching, lots of miracles, but they've been occurring all over the place. All of a sudden, the book of John, after this moment, it turns very significantly, and it's all about Jesus's journey back to Jerusalem, back to that part of town, and eventually to the cross. And so it's very significant that this story begins with Jesus deciding, is now the right time for me to go to that area? Because he knows that the moment he starts that journey, he is setting in place a series of events that cannot be undone. So the timing is really, really important, and his decision to delay is significant. Should I go back? Because it's going to set everything in motion. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 9. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. That's a bit cryptic, and we're going to come back to that later on. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will surely get better. You can always count on the disciples for just saying something really silly and a very significant moment. So clearly Jesus is using a metaphor here. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. This is really interesting. In this story, we've seen that Jesus has had two responses that I would say naturally don't really make any sense. If someone comes to you and tells you that someone that you really care about is unwell, you do something about it, right? So you either pray, you take a meal, you do something immediately. Jesus says, let's wait two days, which makes no sense to me. Let's wait two days. And then he says, 
Lazarus has died, so he's aware about this. And then he says, this is not all that is going on. There is an opportunity here. And so Jesus speaks into this that actually it's not just about what we observe, that there is a painful situation, but something is going on. God is at work. And so Jesus is hinting at something else going on. He sees this sickness as an opportunity, not a final statement. That's important to be aware of. Let's keep reading. Uh, Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. That's the same Thomas who later on who doubted Jesus, but he clearly was capable of great faith as well. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. And yes, that is very classic Martha-Mary split. That is exactly what we know of them. That is what would have happened. How difficult is this in verse 21? Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, hear the tone in that voice. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And now Jesus begins to kind of give away. Uh, This is a massive spoiler alert. Jesus begins to drop hints that actually something else is going on in this story. Martha answers, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, that means that she agrees with a very popular belief that the Jews did hold to that actually one day, God's chosen people would be raised to life. Resurrection was not a brand new idea that Jesus brought in. It was something that the Jews believed in. So she says, well, yeah, he's a holy man. One day he will be raised back to life. But if you might remember what Dave Roderick said a few weeks back, often miracles are just things happening quicker, okay? And so she believes, well, yes, he will be raised to life one day. And Jesus says, ah, but watch my timing. Look at my timing. Jesus says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, they will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And I want to pause here to say that for each sign that occurs in the book of John, There is an I am statement. Jesus claims something about who he is. I am this. I am that. And this is a massive throwback to Exodus, where Moses says to God, you're going to send me to Pharaoh. Who should I say sends me? And God replies, tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. And so I am actually is a name for God. And so when Jesus begins using these phrases, I am, I am, I am, He is unashamedly linking himself to the divine, saying, actually, that truth that God said about himself, I am in that truth. This is me as well. But listen to this. This is John Milne talking about this phrase in this moment, that this is an incredible statement. I am the resurrection and the life. What kind of life does Jesus offer us? Well, to quote John, he says, materially, he gives life to water. He makes it into wine. Spiritually, He offers the new spiritual life of the kingdom of God to somebody like Nicodemus. 
and the life which springs up within a person that satisfies all your thirst to the woman of Samaria, which you can read about in John 4. Physically, he imparts life to a dying boy, a long-standing physical paralytic, and a man born blind. He is the good shepherd who has come to give life to the, what's the word? Life to the full. Come to give life to the full. Jesus now fills out all of these claims to their fullest proportion. The life he gives is nothing less than the indestructible life of the resurrection, the very life of the deathless God himself. Moreover, it is his gift here and now. That is everything that is held up in that statement, I am the resurrection and the life. These are huge words from Jesus. Okay, let's look at this, verse 28. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, and again, that phrase, listen to this, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, he would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. We need to pause at this because actually lots of different people have interpreted this differently. Okay, so some people would say, okay, at this moment, Jesus is feeling really, really upset. That doesn't quite do it justice. When we look at the words that are used, you can equally translate troubled in spirit as basically being severely angry. This is not just a, I'm sad at the situation. This is, this situation is so wrong. It's such an injustice. I am seething with anger. I'm really, really frustrated at what I'm seeing around me. Have you ever felt that sort of injustice? It's a different level. It's not just sad. It's when you see something on the news and you go, that thing is not right. This should not happen. It is unnatural. It's the wrong time. Whatever you might think about it, it's that sort of gut-turning, I can't help but have a physical response to this. That's what's going on for Jesus right now, okay? So we're all feeling that. Jesus said, uh, or Jesus is explained to be feeling that level of discomfort and anger at this moment. Verse 34, where have you laid him? He asked, come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, here we go, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And let's pause here for just a moment as well. It's fascinating that this is an included detail in John. A lot of, you know, people that have written stories about gods and superheroes, they wouldn't include this sort of stuff. Why would you? But what an incredible moment to demonstrate Jesus' humanity and the way that he understands our pain. But there's also something really, you know, interesting, potentially also going on here in the background. Psychologists have said, right, that when you're around someone who's really upset, you sometimes get a bit teary, okay? Have you ever had that experience when you're around people, if you're, you're with someone who's really going through something? You yourself, sometimes unexplainably, can't help but also partake in that sense of sadness. Is that an experience that any of you have ever had? You know, you sort of, you're with someone who's sad and it draws out, it almost feels like it's being pulled out of you, a sadness. It's a very unusual experience. But actually, psychologists would say that what's happening in that moment 
One of the popular theories is that as people, we all carry around different griefs, different sorrows, different sadnesses, but some of us are better at dealing with it than others, right? So for some of us, we might be a one. We might love sort of processing it immediately. I feel sad. I'm going to cry. I'm dealing with it. I'm talking to people. Some of us may be closer to the fours, fives, typically British. We're going to bottle that thing up, put that away. Don't want to deal with it. That's not something for now. I, I can't let people see me cry. That's shameful. I can't do that. We hide that emotion. We don't deal with it. In the West, this is a real problem. In other parts of the world, things like you know, going to a funeral, it really highlights the difference in culture the way that people process grief, totally different in other parts of the world. Here, very stiff upper lip, keep it professional, presentable. We don't deal with that emotion. But psychologists say that all that stuff that you push down, all that stuff that you kind of hide away, you bottle it away, what happens to it? Well, when you're with someone who's sad, it brings that stuff up. And so actually, that sadness that you think you're just sharing with someone else because of the thing that's going on in their life, it's actually sometimes it's sadness that you have experienced yourself, but you've pushed it away. So what could Jesus possibly be experiencing that he's either not dealing with or is going on in the background that's being drawn out now? Well, I think this has got something to do with the fact that he delayed this trip by two days. Just a kind of a, maybe a bit of a call out. What might Jesus have been doing in those two days? Any ideas? What could he have done? If there's no answers, that's absolutely fine. Any suggestions? What could have Jesus been doing? And to, so he decided, he's heard this bad news, and he's arrived saying that there's something going on and that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So what's he doing in those two days? Potentially praying. He's saying, and actually his initial response, right, was really weird. I've heard about this situation. Okay, we're going to wait two days. Two whole days. And what do we know about Jesus from the various you know, moments in his ministry when it's really significant and it's coming down to it? He's going to pray. He's going to withdraw. He's going to take time to figure out, God, what's your strategy in this moment? God, what are you up to? Is this just a sickness or is there something else that you could be doing? Jesus also is challenged by his disciples about going to the place where they know he's going to die. So what else is he doing in those two days? He's getting ready emotionally for the fact that actually this is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of the end of his earthly ministry because he knows that the moment he sets foot in that direction, he is putting in place a series of very important events. So in those two days, Jesus is deeply considering the death of his, one of his closest friends and his own mortality. So would he be slightly emotionally heightened? You bet. And so he comes here and arrives at a funeral. He sees some of his best friends beside themselves. And what happens? All of this is coming up for him. Everything that I was born to do, my whole mission is about to be launched. My closest friend, Lazarus, has died, and I'm about to perform a miracle that's going to set everything off. Because this is going to be a big, bold firework of a miracle. A lot of his other ones, what's he done afterwards? He's told people, keep this quiet. Don't tell people. Shush. What's he about to do now? In front of a whole crowd of people, raise someone from the dead. This is someone nailing their colors to the mast. This is a significant moment. Sorry, that was a big detour. Let's keep reading. Verse 36. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him because of his tears. Verse 37. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? 
Can you notice there, there are three accusations at Jesus. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Couldn't this man who's done all these miracles stopped him from dying? These people just heaping accusation and accusation at Jesus. But it's all in his timing. Verse 38. Jesus, once more, deeply moved. Remember that emotion we were talking about, that sense of anger and injustice. He comes to the tomb. Calvin, writing a commentary on this, said this is not someone weakly approaching a tombstone. This is a boxer getting into the ring. And I love that picture that actually this is Jesus squaring up with what will ultimately be his final battle. And this is just the warm-up round. He approaches the stone, laid across the entrance. Verse 39, take that stone away, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there will be a bad smell. Ever practical, I love that. For he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Interesting note there. Jesus hasn't prayed yet. So yes, he must have been praying earlier that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but I have said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they might believe that you have sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus. And he said his name because if he didn't qualify it with the name, everybody would have been raised from the dead. Lazarus, come out. And the dead man comes out. None of the others. It's not their time yet. His hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus was planning this. He knew all along this was what he was planning to do. That's why the author leaves in this really weird note that Jesus is given like a warning before he performs the miracle. It's very rare that someone before, like issues a warning to Jesus when something amazing is about to happen. He's like gearing up, ready to go. Jesus, there'll be a bad smell. Like just kind of throwing out from the distance. It's a really weird note to add in. But it's because John wants us to realize that Jesus has been planning this from the beginning. Of course, there would be a bad smell. And the assumption is that when he comes out, because it's not said that there was a smell, well, maybe his body didn't decompose. Maybe Jesus was praying from the very beginning, God, don't let that body start to go. God, I want to perform a miracle that's going to bring faith, that's going to bring good, that's going to launch this final part of my ministry. God, don't let it happen. And so the body is in one piece. After four days, it should have started to decompose. She was absolutely right. It should have smelt horrific, but it didn't because Jesus had prayed and this miracle actually had happened days ago. He was just fulfilling the second half of it. This was his plan. And then the final thing to say is this. Lazarus was definitely the biggest loser in this story, right? (laughs) He went to heaven and he got called back. Could you imagine, okay, that you've died from whatever horrific illness he had, and you've been, you know, you, whatever, whatever you might think it might be, pearly gates, clouds, I don't know. I think it would be a lot more earthy than that, personally. But whatever it is, it's paradise, and it's awesome. And what happens? You can imagine, right? Lazarus is there sort of getting his, you know, stuff sorted out. He's unpacking his suitcase. Oh, I love this room. It's got AC and everything. Oh, what is AC? He's absolutely loving it. And he's getting all comfy, setting his stuff out. Room service. Sorry, there's been a mistake. Um, you got to go back. 
What? I've got to go back? I just got here. Could you imagine what that would be like? Lazarus has just arrived. He's been there a couple days and he's being called back already. He's absolutely the biggest loser in this story. He gets called back. What happens? He's been taken from paradise. He's inside a dark, dingy cave. He's wrapped up with cloth. What a shocking way for this man to come back to life. I've got so many questions. Have you ever thought that? When I get there, man, I've got questions for people. I want to know. I want to speak to Lazarus and find out what that was like. And so there we have it. Lazarus is raised from the dead. And this is the biggest, most significant miracle to happen yet. And Jesus launches his ministry. And what I wanted to do, and actually I'm just, uh, I want to wrap up by pulling out something that I felt like God was saying for us tonight from this particular story. And it's this truth. That Jesus can work all things for good in your life if you trust him. And I'll say that again just so you can take this in. Jesus can work all things for good in your life if you will trust him. Somebody give me a nod if you agree with that. He can work all things for good in your life if you trust him. If if you've still got this Bible, just look back, actually, at this really cryptic verse that comes out in verse 9. Jesus answers, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Why, just before this great miracle, why is there this really weird cryptic passage about walking in the daytime and walking at night? Why is that included? Why would Jesus say this thing? And I believe it's because Jesus wanted to be really clear that what's about to happen will happen to all these disciples eventually. The bottom will fall out, something horrific will happen in their life, something difficult, some suffering, some pain, some situation that will cause them to question everything, and it will be as though they have the opportunity to choose to walk in the darkness or in the light. What's going to happen? Jesus has, is, is preparing them for this. That's why it's in here. Jesus wants us, each one of us in this room, to get used to following him because that is similar to walking in the light. And going through a difficult time without Jesus is like walking in the dark. And I don't know what you're like when it comes to traveling, uh, whether you prefer traveling at night or during the day, whether it's flying or by car. Um, But Maddie and I have actually just been on a weekend away, which is really fun, with some friends. Apparently doing that sort of thing with a seven-week-old is like so much work. It's unbelievable. So I'm just slowly recovering from that. But we loaded up our now massive car with some stuff. We got traveling. We set off. Uh, on the M5 heading south. I love going south on the M5. I'm always going somewhere fun when I do that. It's just you either going to the coast or something good. Massive accident on the M5. And obviously, I hope that everyone's okay that was involved, but we get stuck in this thing. Hour and a half added on to our journey with a baby in the back. Oz did great, by the way, which is a, is a miracle in itself. But we were really set back by this journey. So I've got to figure out about like feeding and all this stuff. And what's, you know, is he going to be okay? What time is it going to be when we get there? We wanted to be there at a certain time. The sun sets, it's dark real quick. And that's fine when you're on the motorway, but in the deepest, darkest parts of southern England, where there are no streetlights, when as soon as you pull off, traveling at night is hard work. Have you ever done that? Have you ever driven down those country lanes and it's, when I say pitch black, I mean you've got the visibility of your lights and literally nothing else. I couldn't see a thing. So we're going around, you can kind of see a car off in the distance maybe. That's helpful, that gives you a bit of a clue. But otherwise... I actually find it quite terrifying driving at night, especially on country lanes. 
several times. You ever done that thing where you like breathe in when you go past another car because you're convinced that the road is just not wide enough for both of you to go through? Several times, Maddie and I both were like, like this, just as you go past another car. We kept on doing it. It was a difficult journey at night. What's really weird is that we drove back today the exact same route, but we did it at about 11 a.m. And we're driving home, and we drove the most beautiful route. It was phenomenal. We were winding through this valley that is kind of still like late autumn set. There are trees, all the shades of oranges, yellows, golds, and it is stunning. The trees are sort of capped with these colors, leaves falling, there are streams. We're winding our way through this valley, and then we climb it, and then you get to see over the edge, and there's this stunning view, and the mist is kind of rolling through the bottom. And this lasts for about 20 to 25 minutes, and every single time we turn a corner, we're just going, oh my gosh, look at this view. Look at all these details. How amazing is this? And it makes me fall in love with kind of living in the UK and getting to see the beautiful scenery that we have. It's the most wonderful thing to do. But it just made me realize as I was getting ready for this talk tonight, I felt like the Lord was saying, I want my people to travel at day. I want them to travel with me. Because actually, when you go through a difficult time on your own, it's like traveling a windy, narrow road in the dark. All you're thinking about is the end destination. God, am I going to get through this? That's all you're thinking about. You lose all sense of context, all sense of time. When you're without God, traveling through suffering feels lonely and isolated, and you can't see the wood for the trees, literally. And then he says, I want you to travel by day. And what happens? Well, actually, the journey becomes really important as well. And actually, as Jesus steps into our situations, and very much like he did in this story, he weeps. We realize that he stands with us. And there's things to be learned in the weeping and in the sorrow and in the suffering. Jesus wants us to travel with him because it's like traveling in the day. Because all of a sudden the journey matters. There are things to learn. There are details and things can be beautiful. And it's because, as it says in Romans 8, 28, every situation can be worked out for good for those who trust and follow Jesus. Amen? Amen. Father, I thank you for this truth that, uh, yeah, you call us to travel in the light. You call us to be people who walk with you. God, we thank you that you wept uh, as you were stood at that graveside because of the injustice and, and the wrongness of death. And God, you do that with us too. You weep with us when things go wrong. And Father, I pray that for everyone actually who, who might be either going through that situation now or as we prepare maybe for, for something that could happen in the future that we don't know about. Lord, I pray that we would know the God who defeats death at our side, weeping in that moment. God, would we be people who travel in the light, that we would walk with you, not away from you, and that we would know that comfort and that peace that comes through it. Lord, that in our suffering, we might grow and learn and become more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.